such a, a joy and a pleasure and an honor to be here. I don't have a lot of time this morning, and we're not really coming from any kind of study in a book or a series, so I thought that I would address a topic that I think will be useful to everybody. The state of the world, I think, inclines a lot of Christians to uh, sometimes despair. If you read the news or you watch the news, but you don't read your Bible, you might be in a state of despair. And we're called not to be in despair, we're called not to be in confusion, but we're called to know our God and to love our God and to hope and joy in the future. So if you feel confused ever, or you feel despair ever, go to the Word and you will find hope and joy. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to, rather than uh, try to uh, sort of address like a single piece of scripture and explain it, um, through sort of a rigorous exegetical analysis, <laughs> what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at a few examples that will give you a methodology for interpreting scripture by light of scripture. Okay, are you following me? So if you want to turn to uh, Revelation chapter 11, I'm, we're just going to look at some examples and we're going to look at how to interpret scripture by scripture and hopefully using this methodology, you'll come to your own conclusions that are based on scripture, by light of scripture, that will bring you to not be confused, but to be joyful and hopeful. Okay, so, and I deliberately chose these passages because they are hard passages, but I think that we'll be able to stick together on this because we're going we're gonna to break it down to the smallest possible sort of part. So chapter 11 of Revelation we're going to breeze right through the first couple verses. There was given unto me a reed like unto a rod, and the angels stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city they shall tread underfoot forty and two months. Okay, so we're talking about Jerusalem, the holy city. We're talking about the temple that was in Jerusalem. Uh, John is being asked to measure these things. The question... It's not a literal uh, request of John because John is exiled in Patmos. He can't just go to Jerusalem and measure the temple at this point. Um, but it is, it, it's sort of a metaphor. And what you're going to learn here about Revelation is that it's largely symbolic. I mean, this is what we're going to sort of draw out by interpreting Scripture by light of Scripture. Now, the important part here is actually in verse 3. What I want to talk about are these two witnesses. These two witnesses over the course of the church have been the subject of much discussion. There's no conclusive answer who the two witnesses are, who they were, or who they might be, right? So this is a question. And if you're reading Revelation and you're not reading Revelation in light of Scripture, you might get confused by a question like this. But we're going to try to uh, at least give you a direction. I'm not going to give you the answer. I don't have the answer, but I will give you a methodology and a, a technique of reading scripture by light of scripture that will make it much less confusing, Lord willing. Okay. I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. So two witnesses, two olive trees, two candlesticks. Okay. In Revelation, John loves to do things in threes. So in this case, you're getting a three, three sets of two, two witnesses, two olive trees, two candlesticks. Okay. This is important because what it's signaling is that this is a metaphor. This is a symbol of some kind, right? The two witnesses are also two olive trees and two candlesticks. Has anyone ever seen an olive tree that's also a candlestick, that's also a witness? No, because we don't see symbols in the world around us. We experience symbols and reason about symbols. Symbols are a thing sort of existing outside of the material plane, if you will. Okay. Two olive trees, two candlesticks, standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And in any man, and if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Fire out of the mouth, devouring your enemies. This is very apocalyptic language, symbolic language. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Who does this sound like? Like Moses, right? Turning water into blood. Sounds like Moses. 
And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, here we have a metaphor, one thing being called another thing. The great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Gomorrah. We know Sodom and Gomorrah are the two wicked cities from the Old Testament that were destroyed by God. Are you are we, are we following me? Okay. So what are we doing here? Every time we see something that we recognize, we can think back to where in Scripture this has come up before, and then we can go look at it in context. Okay? So... The, the verse goes on to talk more about the witnesses. They of the people and the kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer and they shall dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them. So now the people of the earth are rejoicing over the dead bodies of the witnesses. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear falls upon them, which sees them. Okay, so this, these are the great, the, the two witnesses of Revelation. The question is, who are they? People are going to ask you these questions. And if you don't know how to interpret scripture by scripture, this will be confusing, but it's not. So then we want to move. We want to find out who these two witnesses are. We've talked a little bit about some of the parallels that we've seen with Moses Uh, Some of the parallels with Sodom and Gomorrah. But the one I want to focus on is the two olive trees. Because I think that if you you just look in your Bible for two olive trees, where will you find this? You'll find this in Zechariah chapter 4. Okay? So there's a very tight connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Okay? The people who wrote the New Testament were intimately familiar with you. You know how you know your favorite TV shows? And you can talk about your favorite TV shows like... Very like fluently because you, you think about that's how John was with the Old Testament. That was their media. That was their culture. OK, so they're talking out of the Old Testament as fluently as you or I talk out of uh, you know, HBO or whatever <laughs> terrible uh, cultural thing is the, is the thing of the moment. <clears throat> So we're going to go to Zechariah chapter 4 because we want to learn about... By the way, again, I'm not trying to give you conclusions here. I'm trying to give you a methodology. I don't have all the answers. I've got ideas about these two witnesses, but there have been much smarter people than me who have looked at this passage for 2,000 years and have not come to, like, conclusive ideas, right? Some people say it's Moses and Elijah. Some people say um, it's even more metaphorical than that. Um... There are many theories for like who the two witnesses are, but I want to go to Zechariah because I think Zechariah is the clearest uh, uh, indication of how to think about this. Yep. <clears throat> so this is Zechariah chapter four, and again, two olive trees. The angel that talked with me came again and waked me. As a man that is wakened out of his sleep and said unto me, what seest thou? And I said, I have looked and behold a candlestick, all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. Seven candlesticks, seven lamps. Where does this imagery come up in the beginning of Revelation? So there's a tie between Zechariah and Revelation. Apocalyptic language is always apocalyptic language in the Old Testament, and the New Testament. And you can tell because of the images that they use. Okay. And the two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side. So I answered and spake unto the angel and talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? What are these, what, what are these olive trees? What are these candlesticks? And the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, knowest thou not what these be? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, not by power, but my, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who are, we're going to stop there. This is the word of the Lord. These images represent the word of the Lord. So we just got the answer, right? Like, are we, are, are we confused now? Are we confused about what the two witnesses are? Because Zechariah says they are the word of the Lord. So now you could, I think that you can interpret this a little bit further. Why are there two of them? Uh, I think the most compelling 
version of this that I've heard. And I'm not, I'm not giving you the conclusion. I'm telling you what I was the most compelling sort of interpretation to me, which is the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are the word of God to the people of Israel in the Old Testament and probably to John too. So the law and the prophets, that makes sense to me as far as who the two witnesses are. Two witnesses that were in Jerusalem alive and well until the wickedness of the day of their day sort of slays them. And, 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 uh, and we can go into Revelation. I would love to do like a whole study of Revelation. But again, I'm just trying to give you the tools that you need to interpret difficult texts. Okay. So <clears throat> I want to go. So that was one example. The two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two candlesticks. There's a lot of imagery around candlesticks. Candlesticks often represent the church. If you look at early in Revelation, you get the seven candles or the seven lamps. They are representative of churches at the time. I want to go to another example in Revelation. Again, I'm, I'm pulling I th- what I think are difficult examples um, deliberately so that you can see sort of the trail through Scripture. Okay, I'm not going to try to give you the whole of Revelation in, one, in 20 minutes. I'm going to try to give you a technique that will make it so that you can determine the conclusions that the Lord wanted you to come to in his, in his scripture. So we're going to chapter six of revelation. Okay. In chapter six, you've got seven seals and you've got the opening of the seven seals, the lamb of God opening the seven seals. I'm going to speak specifically about the sixth seal. I think the sixth seal is is particularly important uh, because it's sort of, it's the last seal of this chapter. It's the last seal before the last seal. If that makes sense. The penultimate seal. And I beheld, this is verse 12 of chapter six. I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal and lo, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood and the stars of heaven fell onto the earth. And even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places and the kings of the earth and great men and rich men and chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the day of his wrath is come who shall be able to stand so, has this ever happened? Let's ask ourselves this. Has the sun become black as sackcloth? Has the moon become as blood? Have the stars of heaven fallen unto the earth? And has the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together? Historically, have these things happened? Like, in, a, in, like a, in like a literal, like Marvel movie sense, have you witnessed this type of thing take place? No, right? So the question is, I mean, there's, there's like, again, if you're reading this, you're asking yourself, what is John writing? Why is John writing it? To whom is he writing it? Why is the whole book this way? Why is the whole book of Revelation, these images, these vibrant, visionary images? And then you, you realize, if you go and you read the rest of Scripture, if you read Zechariah, if you read Isaiah, if you read Exodus, you will see that this type of language is used often. And it's often used to describe like real events. And so that's, that's what's happening here. <clears throat> if we go to Matthew 24, we'll see sort of an echo of this. Matthew 24 is the great prophecy of our Lord. That if, So if you read Matthew 24, and he says these things are going to come to pass while this generation is on this earth. And he says... In Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall be shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Sounds very familiar, right? Same kind of language we were getting in Revelation. Am I right? Are we, are we tracking here? Okay. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And Christ says this will soon come to pass. In Revelation, it says these things will soon come to pass. So the question is, when they say soon come to pass, does that mean, like, are we looking forward to this terrifying thing to happen in the future? Or is it apocalyptic language describing a real event that actually already took place and now 
We can say, look at this prophecy of our Lord and how it comes true and how it's the Lord's promise never fails. It never fails. If he says something's going to come to pass soon, it does. If he says it's going to come to pass in that generation, it does. We call ourselves hard shall Baptists. I think it shall happen at the time, and I think it already has happened at the time, which is the beauty here, right? Okay. So coming in glory, uh, the, the, the Lord coming in glory in the heavens. We've got this vision of the earthquake, the, uh, the sun going dark, the moon turning to blood. Uh, in, ex- in Exodus, this is very much like in Exodus uh, when they're in front of Mount Sinai, and the Lord makes the earth shake. The, the Lord makes the earth shake from Mount Sinai because it's his presence. It's he's, he's there, right? That's what it's like when the Lord is present in this material plane. It is earth shattering. It is earth. Sh- I mean, we, we use these words as metaphors all the time. We say it's earth shattering. It's, 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 uh, <laughs> it's an earthquake. It's like it, it changes what is underneath our feet. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 2. I'm going to make sure I'm good on time. So Isaiah chapter 2. And again, I'm just looking for this kind of language. I'm looking for this kind of language in the scripture. And I'm trying to get an understanding. What is the whole of scripture trying to tell us here? Verse 17, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of man shall be made low and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day and the idols he shall utterly abolish and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Shake terribly the earth. They shall go into caves. What did it say in Revelation? That they shall ask the mountains to cover them, the rocks to cover them. Right? So we're seeing the parallels. And in that day man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made each one for himself to worship to the moles and to the bats to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake terribly the earth. When he arises to shake terribly the earth. The fear of the chiefs and the captains begging to be covered up. So then the question will be, what is, what is Isaiah prophesying here? Is it the same event? Is it a different event with similar circumstances? And has it already come to pass? Or is Isaiah pro- prophesying something way into the future, like in our future? Okay? I'm not going to give... I, I mean, I, I, I've kind of told you what I think here and what I believe, which is most of these prophecies have already come true. And we can, we can look to history and say, our Lord does not lie. Our word, the, the word that he has given us does not lie. It does not cause confusion. It only, if you come to know it, it only causes understanding. The Lord sent his son that he might be known. And he's not the author of confusion. Following me? Okay. Uh, I'm going to close out here in Second uh, Peter. I think that the important thing, the important thing, again, what are, what are the two commandments? To love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love one another as we love ourselves, but as he loves us, right? Um, and we come in here, why do we, why do we start this whole conversation about inter- interpreting the Bible by light of the Bible? So that we wouldn't be confused and we wouldn't despair, okay? Because we're not, as Christians, we should not be confused and we should not despair. We should have joy and hope and faith. And what does Second Peter chapter 3 say? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation godliness? Seeing that this is just temporary 
and that all things come to pass in this realm. What shall we be in holy conversation and in godliness? What should we be doing? We should be looking. We should be looking for and hasting under the coming of the day of the Lord. So if, if, if the, the thing is this, this sounds bad, fervent dissolving of heat, the earth shall be burned up. This, sound, this is apocalyptic. But is it bad? No, because we should haste towards it. We should run toward it, looking for and hasting under the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall be melted with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we look, we look according to his promise for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is where we are in history. We look at history, so many of our brothers and sisters, we look at history and we think it's going to get worse and worse and worse and then it'll get better. No, we're looking forward to this. We're looking forward to new heavens and new earth for the burning up of the heavens. This is a thing now that we need to be looking for in optimism, with hope, with joy. It's a, I'm just overwhelmed when I think about how perfectly Everything in this book matches up with all of our experience. This is why only the Christian has a coherent viewpoint on what's happening in the world today. Only the Christian, by light of scripture, can read scripture, but more, read the events that are taking place around you. You understand. You understand human depravity. You understand that some of his children are saved. And you understand that this church is his body, and it is purifying the earth, that his will must be done. The Lord does not pray ineffectually. When he prays that your Father, your will in heaven, be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's effectual. That's happening. All of his enemies will be under his feet. All of his enemies will be made a footstool. And the last enemy to be defeated will be death. Amen. Thank you so much. And God bless you. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. Well, 36. But when he, that's Christ, saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples. Luke account gives the number of disciples that he is addressing here. But he says, then he saith unto the disciples. And this is Christ. If you are following in your Bible, you can see that it's in red. And he's talking about. The times that we're in, the circumstances of the times, what he witnessed, says that he was moved with compassion when he saw it. There were those that were around that were fainting because they were overwhelmed. They were discouraged. He says when he saw that, that they were scattered abroad, that he says to the multitude, to the followers right there. And this is the charge to all of us. The conclusion is that the harvest is truly plenteous. Talking about right now. But he says that the laborers are few. Said the harvest time is here. There's multitudes of folks that are confused, that are fainting, that are discouraged, that are giving up. And it says those that have some messages to encourage them in the midst of this massive time of harvest that the laborers are few. It doesn't matter how big of a harvest you have if you have but a few laborers. And he says, so you pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his harvest. That's a charge for all of us right now to pray that God would send laborers into his harvest. That's men that would serve in the capacity of of preachers. I think back in my mind that when I first came to Mount Carmel, I remember that there were so many of these older ministers. A lot of them traveled here and preached here with Elder Darty. Uh, Elder Piles, Elder Bradley, so many of them that now are either with the Lord or no longer able to preach. And 
I was reminded yesterday when I was at the New York Fellowship that I, I was actually the oldest person there. I was glad that there were so many young folks, but the oldest person there. And no longer are there those older ministers of the gospel that, that, that traveled around. The harvest, as we look around, is truly plenteous, but the labors are few. And we need to pray that God would raise up and bless us with more labors in the harvest. I want to continue on in what we talked about several weeks ago. As, as I was coming back from New York and I, I had driven and as I was coming back and as I got closer to Maryland, I, I looked on the GPS and I thought, can I make it over to Lancaster to the hospital before the visiting hours are over with and, and see Brother Kilby? And calculated it out, and, and I, I, I thought if, if, I, if I don't miss any turns and, and don't have any delays, I can get there and, and get there about 30 minutes before they close. So I ventured off 95, and I'm headed up through the Amish country, and I enjoy driving up through there in the daytime when it's daylight or the sun shining. But last night it was rainy and dreary and, 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 and just wasn't quite as enjoyable as it is in the daytime. And I thought, I wonder if I made a mistake or, or not trying to get up there uh, before dark and before closing. And when I got there, I had such a sweet visit with Brother Kilby, and we just had a good time together rejoicing in the Lord. I drove back. I don't like driving. I can drive at night, but I don't like driving at night, especially in the rain and on roads that I'm not familiar with. But, but it was worth it and had a really good time. But as I was going up there and as I was driving back, I realized that we're at the point, as I mentioned earlier, we need some more deacons. Brother Kilby is our only active deacon, and he's in the hospital in Lancaster. We need some more, we need some more ministers. When, when you get to the point that you're not comfortable driving in the rain after dark, you need some younger folks that can drive you around and help with that as well. So I realized that we need some younger preachers. We need some younger deacons. We and the Lord has blessed us with some folks in our congregation that really fit the bill well, that can serve in that capacity. So we need to move forward in those in that direction. Take a few minutes here and I want to just highlight some things and then touch on some verses that I don't think we touched on when we looked at what Timothy is instructed of Paul about deacons. Now, the need for deacons we looked at in in Acts chapter six, just going to summarize it right here. I, I want to give I want to pass this charge to you that Jesus Christ passed to the disciples that we're to pray for labors and we're to pray that God would bless us with deacons as well. And so I want you to commit it to prayer that God will make it perfectly clear in your mind and in the mind of those that will serve in this capacity. And that he will convict them and bless them to have the desire to serve in this capacity and that it will be known and clear to all. So let's let's look at this. It says in Acts chapter six, it tells about the need for deacons. It says that that there was just there was just a tremendous need that the ministers couldn't do it, that the needs were too great and that uh, they were instructed to go out. And it said, look out among you. So I believe that, that what that means is that you look out among the congregation, the local individual church. We don't run an ad in the, in the local newspaper that we need to find a deacon. Uh, we don't even run an ad on Indeed to try to find a deacon or any of the current websites. But you look out among your congregation, your body. And we'll see that one of the reasons that you look out among your body a couple of reasons right here is that if you're looking out among your body, you're going to find some men that believe what the scriptures have to say about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. You're going to find men that embrace the doctrine that you believe. You're also going to find men that have a heart and a burden or a desire to be able to help and be used of God within that local individual body right there. It confused me. 
uh, a while back. I was in New York years ago, and someone was telling me that they needed uh, that they needed uh, a singer at their church, and so they were interviewing folks uh, out of the uh, out of uh, in New York City that might qualify to be a singer in that church. And I thought that's. I thought, I'm glad we don't have that problem. You know, we really don't. If somebody wants to sing, they just come to church here, open their mouth and sing. And we just enjoy it as a as a group setting. And it's just a wonderful time. And I thought, you know, that's one of the blessings of being in an old Baptist church is we don't have to run an ad to hire a singer for the church. Now, might help us in some cases, but I don't really think so. I love our singing. It, I just love it. Love the slow songs, the fast songs and all of them in between. It just ministers to my soul. Our singing is a blessing. But he says, you look out among you and the purpose of the deacons. And we I'm sure we'll touch on this more. But it was to meet the the needs of the poor. It was to meet the needs of the widows. It was to meet the needs of the fatherless. It's to take the needs. It's to address the needs of the flock in general. It's to make sure that the pastor is able to feed the the flock with a spiritual food. It's to make sure that all the needs are met, that if needs arise among the congregation, that the deacons are receptive to that and that they have a desire to be used of God to help meet those needs. And this role of serving in the role of a deacon, it, 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 it may last a long time. And it may be at some times difficult, but it's a special role that God has designed to help the church, the furtherance of the church of Jesus Christ. It is. Went to a church years ago in upstate New York and and uh, all that was there was just a little handful of 80 year old sisters. I mean, they couldn't even hardly get in the door. There were people out there. Pulling and pushing, trying to get them in the doors. And I thought to myself, so very sad. There's not any young people here. There's not any children here. There's nobody to serve in the role of deacons in this capacity. I love 80-year-olds and 90-year-olds and and what a blessing. But I tell you what, it's a wonderful blessing when you've got the whole thing. You've got some 80-year-olds and 90-year-olds and a few hundred-year-olds. And you've got these little children. I mean, like Carmine coming up and helping lead singing. That just really makes the church and then everything else in between. Great blessing. Well, God's designed this role and the purpose of this role was for the good of the church, for the good of the poor, for the good of the congregation as a whole, for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go to first Timothy chapter three, because as you're praying that God will make it clear for deacons within this church body right here, that he will make it clear. It's not it's not that we have a knockdown conference meeting and debate things back and forth and all like that. It's that we're praying that God's going to make it super clear on who has a desire, a heart and who meets the qualifications that are clearly laid out right here in first Timothy chapter three. It says, and I'm just going to touch on some things that we didn't touch on before. Uh, uh, It says, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth the good work. And then it goes down in verse eight and it refers to deacons and all of the qualifications that he mentions right here as a minister. When he comes down and he addresses the deacons, he uses this term right here that I think ties up a lot of it together. He says, likewise. So it doesn't mean that. Those qualifications of the minister to be considered and then tossed aside when you're looking at the qualifications of a deacon. Likewise, you consider the things that are above. So I believe here's one of the things that 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 come to light right here. It says, if he desireth the office, he desireth a good work. First of all, you want somebody that desires the work. Not that you put it upon them and they're willing to do it because they can't get out of it. But you want somebody that it is apparent that God is working in their heart and giving them the desire to be used of him in this capacity. Now, I want to tell you, one of the blessings of having this desire is that 
when times get hard, I can tell you this from it being in the ministry. If it was a secular occupation or if it was something that was strictly of the world, when things get difficult, you'd probably look to move on down the road like you would maybe in your next job. My mother always taught me. She said, don't you leave the job you have until you have another job in place. Don't you leave the one you have. But I tell you what, if you desire, if it's clear that God has put this desire in your heart, then if things get difficult, you're not going to move down the road, but you're going to stick with it and you're going to work through it. And you're going to beg God to intervene in the lives of the individuals. You're not going to write off the church and write off the congregation because God has put a desire in your heart to be used of him to make a difference if he desireth a good work. So I believe that I believe that we need to be praying that God will reveal to the church and reveal to the individuals that he has put that desire in their heart. To be used of him in this capacity. Heard a preacher say one time as far as preachers were concerned. He said if you can do anything else other than preach the gospel do it. That's to show you that if God puts that desire in your heart. You really can't do anything else. You're not going to be content. You're not going to be satisfied. You're going to be most satisfied if you're doing what God's put in your heart to do. So he then he goes down, he lists the qualifications. We talked about that. He talks about uh, the character, talks about those that are of a good report, both within and without. I I just I use as the constant example of that. uh, I have three minutes left. I'm going to go a little bit past this morning because we went a little bit past on the song service because we started a little bit past 1030. So we're just going to kind of move it up. So if you want me to stop at 12 o'clock or as Brother Justice Eatman says 1157, then try to get here at 1027 and we'll start that song service at 1030 and we'll start that preaching at 11 and we'll wrap it up at 1157. But let me borrow just a few minutes from you right here because this is important stuff. How many remember Frank Rogers? There's a few folks that remember him. That tells how old you are. Poor old brother Frank, wonderful brother. Uh, he had outlived two wives. I knew the second and third. He outlived two wives. He was pulling an oxygen bottle with him up in his 80s. And he told me, he said, if I'd known I was going to live so long, I'd have taken a lot better care of myself. I'd have quit smoking a lot sooner. There's a whole lot of things I'd have done different. But uh, he was about 83 years old and he was walking along, pulling this oxygen tank. And and he started courting Elsie or Elsie started courting him. I don't know. I think she ran after him as fast as he ran after her. And he called me one day. And after Frank died, he, she went after Brother Polk. <laughs> Brother Polk used to sit toward the back and he kept creeping up to the front. And finally he was sitting on the front row with me. And I found out it was because Elsie was going after Brother Polk. <laughs> well, Brother Frank asked me if I'd do the wedding for he and sister Elsie. Third, third wife, he'd outlived the first two. And we're sitting there talking right before the wedding. And he said, Brother Stephen, for me... He said, this is the grand finale. (laughs) Well, maybe this ordaining these deacons is the grand finale for us. I believe that this group of deacons that we're going to ordain. I believe that they're going to be used of the Lord in a mighty way. And that the days of Mount Carmel are not in the past, but in the future. And I believe that God's going to use them in such a way that it's going to bless Mount Carmel in such mighty and wonderful ways. Not that he hasn't blessed with deacons in the past. We've been blessed with outstanding deacons in the past. In fact, Ellen, I keep talking to your dad about moving back up here and, and telling him we need him in serving in the role of the deacon. Really do. Maybe he's listening. I don't know. But uh, we do. But I believe that God's going to use us with use these deacons in a mighty way. And I believe that they're going to be used in such a way that that Mount Carmel will be blessed 
and that Mount Carmel will be solid in, in, in the doctrine and that, that when it comes time to find a new pastor for Mount Carmel, that they'll be convicted in the doctrines of grace and they'll make absolutely sure that a new pastor that comes along is not going to bring in some free willism, but that he's going to stay true to the doctrines of this church, the Articles of Faith that Mount Carmel was started upon in 1934. That's super important. It is. It's important that Mount Carmel continue in the same example and articles, that we don't deviate from that. And these deacons will have a vital role when that time comes. They certainly will. So this may be, as far as the ordination of a batch of deacons, This may be the grand finale for us. It's been great in the past, but I think the best is yet to come. I do. God's putting it on the hearts of some of these men. I've talked to a few of them. He's putting it on the hearts of some of them. And I'm rejoicing in seeing that. And I'm rejoicing that they're sharing this conviction. But I want to touch on just a couple of verses right here that that I think are really, really good. He talks about the qualifications. He does. And that's important. And you read that because it's it's important for you to see it and to be aware of it. Talks about how important it is that he uh, be an example for his family and be an example for the congregation as well. But then he comes down and he says, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. I think this is really important. I hope that I'm understanding it correctly right here because I don't want to mislead you for the world. But I believe that what he's talking about right here is that the truths in God's word, they're super precious. They're super specific. The doctrines of grace that Brother Danny brought forth this morning are are very, very specific. The doctrine of total depravity, of unconditional election, of irresistible grace, of limited atonement. It's super specific. And if someone does not, if they're not convicted by those doctrines, if that's something that that, uh, uh, someone that is, is considered to be serving in this capacity, if they're not convicted about these principal points of the doctrine, they don't need to be serving in that capacity. We don't need someone that's going to deviate from what the scriptures have to say. Now, they can bring their gifts, they bring their abilities, but don't, don't try to uh, uh, cause the folks to be confused about the doctrine. If someone decides that that's their, uh, th- that they struggle inwardly about that, they don't need to be in that role. When the Lord began to stir my heart to preach the gospel, I said, Lord, would you, would you bless me to be convicted about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that, 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 that I myself can believe it, that I can believe it because I can't expect you to believe it if I don't believe it. And it's the same way in the role of the deacon. That the deacons need to embrace the doctrine and it needs to be known that they embrace the doctrine. Not just agree with it, but that they love it and it's a part of their life. And he says right here, holding the mystery of faith. Uh, It may look mysterious to other people, but he says holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. If you're looking for somebody that's perfect to serve in this capacity, you're not going to find them here. I can tell you you're not going to find them anywhere. But that in their conscience and in their mind, this is what the doctrine represents. This is what Christ represents. And that that I believe that this is the church of Jesus Christ that he set up on this earth. And I have the blessing of being able to serve in this capacity. Not saying that God doesn't dwell in other places. I certainly believe he does. But you need somebody that's serving in this capacity that's willing to make the commitment And that it's known that they believe that this is what Christ set up, the church that Christ set up. If not, they don't need to serve in that capacity. Let's go down and hit just a couple more verses right here. This is so good. It's really, really good. He says, let the deacons uh, be the uh, husband of, of one wife. Well, that in itself shows why that we ordain men for deacons. I mean, that that one verse right there. But then he says right here, and I think this is really, really good. We've we've talked about some of the qualifications. We've talked about some of the responsibilities in times past. But here's where the pay comes in. Here's where the pay comes in. 
Great retirement program. Look at what he says right here. For they that have used. By the way, I missed something right here. I missed something. Miss a whole lot. But here's one thing that I know that I missed. It says in verse 10, and I think this is interesting right here. He tells all the qualifications. He tells the desire. He tells the responsibility. And then he says, but these things need to be proved. You need to be able to see that this is something that is the desire. It has to be proved. But here he comes down and he says, they that have used the office of a deacon, these that serve in this capacity, he said they use the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. I, there's a lot in that and I hope I can sort of tap into it just for a second right here. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased themselves a good degree. Now if I believed... From an Armenian standpoint, I would think that that simply meant that you're putting some more stars in your crown. That when you get to heaven, you're going to walk around the streets of gold and you're going to be able to wear on your lapel that I was uh, Deacon Bloyd. And you're going to get a lot of recognition about that. Or that you're going to have a little higher rank when you get to heaven. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that when you serve in this capacity, he says they, they, they purchase to themselves a good degree. Did you know that that in itself is with the folks that are right there with you right now? It's the folks that you're seeing that you're ministering to us to the children. It's also when you're gone. You can look at that. Look at Oris Jackson. Look at John Davis. Look at Don Malcolm. Look at those that served in that capacity. We hold them even this day. We, we give them regard for their labors that they did. Mount Carmel today is what it is today because of those men that God put in their heart. Now, I know it takes the Lord, but the Lord uses people. And he put it in the hearts of these men. And so when he says right here, they purchased to themselves a good degree. I believe that what it means is that in the eyes of the people that are around, in the eyes of God, in the eyes of those that will come after, that there is a respect, there is an honor that's given to those that serve in this capacity, that maybe sometimes put their own desires aside for the good of the church, for the good of the congregation. And then he says right here, with great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus, if you're serving in the capacity of a deacon or a minister, your faith is going to be stronger in the Lord. When trials come, you're going to run to the Lord and ask him to intervene and bless, ask him to give you wisdom and direction in, in making the decisions that you make and setting the example that you set in doing the things that are good for the church. You're going to be looking to the Lord. You're going to be begging God. And when he says right here, great boldness in the faith, you're going to know that you can't do it in and of yourself, but you can do it only in the strength of the Lord. He says, and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, and we'll wrap it up right here. These things, right, we're borrowing right now from the handshake. We'll pass on the handshake today, but just uh, just a couple of minutes here. These things I write unto thee, hoping that. That I, I, he says, I hope I can come to you shortly. But he says, if I can't, he says, if I tarry, Paul telling Timothy this, he says, if I tarry long, I think this is this is an old fashioned term my grandmother used. But if I and I guess my grandmother got it from the Bible, but says, if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the church of God, which is the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. He said, Paul, Timothy, the Lord gave it to Paul. Paul gave it to Timothy. Timothy's given it to us right here. He's uh, through the letter that Paul wrote him. He says, I'm not going to leave you to just be 
uh, without any direction whatsoever. But I'm going to bless you with ministers. I'm going to bless you with deacons. I'm going to bless you with godly men so that the church has some sense of direction. Hopefully you, you'll have a pastor that has some vision of the Lord, a vision of, of better times, a vision of being able to get through difficult times, and that you'll have a group of deacons that, that work together. It's super important. If, if, if there's somebody that, if you've got a group of six or seven or eight deacons and, and somebody decides to be the Lone Ranger on their own, uh, that just doesn't work. It doesn't. In this capacity, you've got to be able to work together and you've got to prefer your brother above yourself. You've got to put their preferences above yours or it's just not going to work. And if somebody wants to be the renegade, they just better move on down the road because that just doesn't work. Somebody came here one time. I have I have just a few tapes of Elder Thompson who pastored here 49 years. Uh, a, a few tapes of Elder Thompson preaching the gospel. And there was a minister that came here and Elder Thompson, who was a wise old man, perceived that this minister was trying to stir up some strife within the congregation. And Elder Thompson graciously just bid him. He, he wasn't from this area, but he came here and he's bringing some trouble. And Elder Thompson just graciously bidding Godspeed and letting him go on down the road. Well, we need to make sure as pastor, deacons, congregation, that we work together as a church body and as a church family, that we encourage and hold each other up. And that's why he says that thou would know how thou shouldest behave thyself in the house of God, which is, I love this. This is so good. So that it's, it's not something we take lightly. The church that God is blessing you to serve in. And, and, and by the way, you don't have to be a deacon to serve in the church. I don't want you to think that, that, that you have to have a deacon, the title of deacon to be able to serve in the church. That's not necessary. But God does give you a special opportunity as a deacon to be able to serve in this capacity. You're more aware of the needs of the flock. You have access to the resources that will be able to help the flock. You're able to take the principles and truths in God's word when you're called upon and encourage people. I, it was such a blessing to fellowship with Brother Kilby. And when I left last night, I was wondering if it was going to be worth the drive of that late at night or if I should wait and go today. It was so worth it. I went to encourage him and he blessed my soul. Well, you deacon brethren that are going to be deacons, deacons to be. God's going to use you to bless the hearts of those people that are in need. He sure will. And without controversy, I tell you what, I don't like controversy. He says right here, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed upon in the world. And then his brother Dan, he was pointing us to the direction of glory. He says he was believed on in the world and he was received up into glory and God's people will be as well. What a great time of rejoicing that that's going to be.